0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Unhurrying with the Rule of Life series. Growing up, I was a pretty happy kid. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, don't hold that against me, um, but where the weather is right at that point of overlap between heaven and earth, you know, just 78 degrees, 350 days of the year. We moved up to Portland when I was 13 and I had my first ever experience with this new phenomenon to me called winter. As my friend Helgi from Iceland likes to say, winter is a form of suffering. And I could not agree more. But still, my teenage years were great. I was introverted and creative and played in some really depressing indie bands, but overall, I was happy. But when I was 17, the height of my homeschooler acne, and don't ask me why those two things always go together, um, but you know they do. I know from personal experience. The doctor put me on a drug for my skin called Accutane, which was later linked to depression and suicide. I think it had an effect, I think it had a permanent effect, that's likely not true, but on my brain chemistry. Either way, around that period of time, late high school, I began to feel a little bit sad. But it could have just been you know, nearing adulthood and for the first time ever, I was starting to feel the weight of life this side of Eden. But when I was 18, I was at church one night, and I have this very vivid memory. I had an encounter with the Spirit of God. I still remember where I was sitting in the room and the vantage point to the church, and I felt the Spirit of God speak into my mind in a very clear thought that came from outside of my own brain, and it was one sentence, I am calling you to become a person of joy. Now, that sounded great. It's like I'm calling you to become a person who eats ice cream. I'm like, okay, I'm in. Sign me up. But within a few weeks, I moved actually I was in kind of a gap year. I moved down to Mexico to volunteer at an orphanage for a few months, and it was warm and sunny and beautiful, and I was with some of my best friends. But all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, I just started to feel really sad. And maybe I'm having a bad day turned into maybe I'm having a bad week turned into maybe I'm having a bad month turned into what the heck is wrong with me. By a year in, I was on the verge of suicide, which never made sense to me before that. But all of a sudden, when you're in that from the inside out, that level of emotional pain that is 24-7, that never goes away, other than when you sleep, and even then, it's only a catch-22, man, all of the sudden, the the deep inner compassion for that. I have these vivid vivid memories of when I was dating my now-wife, T, driving home from her parents' house late at night. I had to drive over this overpass, and I just remember this urge to just yank the steering wheel to the right and just end the pain. By the grace of God, I was aware of the gravity of that kind of a decision. It's devastating effect, the narcissism in it. It's devastating effect on loved ones and family and friends, and the affront to God to end a life that he started. And I was able to keep it together, but just barely. My family, my parents were down here this morning, came around me and friends, and the doctor at some point put me on an antidepressant that got me stable. I still have this vivid memory of walking out with my mom and my dad of the doctor's office with this drug in my hand, just feeling like an utter failure in life. And even with that, I was still very sad. I hated how it made me feel, numb and lethargic, and an antidepressant will not make you a happy person. It will just keep you, at best, stable. And I wish I could tell you that a week later, I was at church again, and I had another encounter with God, an instantaneous healing, and ever since, I've been in competition with Gerald for happiest person in Portland. (laughs) I wish I could tell you that, but that would be a lie. That is not my story at all. I had many encounters with the Spirit of God over the years. In my ongoing struggle with mental health and emotions and all of that, in fact, I think it's what has created a depth of prayer in me that I don't know that that would exist in me without that struggle. There were so many years of my life where I could not even get through the day without the Spirit of God at some level in my soul. But my story has been one of healing, like I feel a high level of inner healing in my spirit, but it has been a long, slow road of three steps forward and 2.9 steps back, and I still feel like I have a long ways to go to become the person that I know that the Spirit of God has set in my heart and even called me to become. But my experience with the dark side of mental health gave me eyes to see just how many followers of Jesus, I was following Jesus through all of this time, how many of us, even in the room this morning, in particular in winter, struggle with joy. For many of us, not all in the room, but for many of us and for all sorts of reasons, joy just does not come naturally." Clinical psychologists break down happiness into the formula H equals S plus C plus V. Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Happiness Project, explains it like this. The level of happiness you actually experience, H, is determined by one, your biological set point, S, plus the conditions of your life, C, plus the voluntary activities that you do. But these three factors do not break down into an even slice of the pie. There was a famous study done by Sonia Loyobimersky, who's a professor from the University of California and a well known researcher on happiness. Her conclusion was that about 50% of our happiness is genetic, meaning it's just our disposition that is wired into our brain from birth. About 40% is what we think and do with our mind and our body. And only about 10% is based on our life circumstances, or what does or does not happen to us. Now, one way of reading the data is that some of us are just screwed. Like, (laughs) thanks, great grandpa, for that genetic code. Um, but that was not her point at all. I mean, and 40% is nothing to laugh at. She writes, "quote Although you may find it hard to believe, whether you drive to work in a Lexus hybrid or a battered truck, whether you're young or old, or have had wrinkle removing plastic surgery, whether you live in the frigid Midwest or the balmy West Coast—hey, not all of the West Coast is that great—your chances of being happy and becoming happier are pretty much the same." She goes on to urge us to appreciate the promise of the great impact that you can make on your own life through intentional strategies that you can implement to remake yourself as a happier person. Now, this study, caused all sorts of debate and controversy in the scientific community. One, it's notoriously hard to measure a person's level of happiness. You hear about a lot of happiness research, and you look at the data points, and it's kind of ridiculous. It's like, how many years of college do they go to, and how much money do they make, and very secular metrics. And all sorts of clinical psychologists have pushed back on her 50% number. Some argue it's higher, but most argue it's lower. But as far as I can tell, they all agree on the 10% that very little of our happiness, or if you prefer, joy, is based on the thing that most of us assume is the main driver and put the most effort and energy into some kind of fix to, that is, our circumstances. One researcher found there is, quote, little correlation between the circumstances of people's life and how happy they are. I read one longitudinal study that looked at people who won the lottery right next to people who were in a tragic accident and ended up quadriplegic. As you would imagine, immediately after both events, the first group was much happier and the second was very sad. But six months in, if you stay with the two groups of people, both groups reverted to their previous baseline of happiness or lack thereof. With one exception, a number of the quadriplegics were actually much happier after the tragedy, likely because they were more aware of what a gift life is. So one way of reading the data, and all data has to be interpreted, is that 90% of how happy we are is internal. It's spiritual formation and 10% is external or circumstances. And as counterintuitive as this sounds, this is where the great religions, East and West, and wisdom traditions have all said this for thousands of years, from Christian theology to Greek philosophy to Buddhist psychology to modern secular neuroscience. They all agree that the good life is less about making our life good and more about making us good. One of the reasons that Lubayomirsky drew the ire of other clinical psychologists was because, whatever percentage our genetics play in happiness, and for sure it is a large part, this inner part of us is far more plastic and pliable than most of us realize. I love this from Jonathan Grant. Neurobiologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, the brain's joy center, located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. As Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explain, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. Happy people are sick less often. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. It is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food and sexual impulses, terror and rage. Without sufficient, quote, joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. Did you know your brain has a joy center? How cool is that? You can study it under a microscope. And did you know that you can cultivate it and exercise it and work it out and grow and enlarge it? Or you can suppress and starve and drain it empty. And everything I just gave you was thoroughly secular in its frame. Sonia um, at one point said I don't have a religious or spiritual bone in my body, even as she concluded from the data that religious people in general and Christians in particular are far happier than the general population. But the secular frame of reality doesn't even have a category for the joy that comes not just from positive thinking or genetics or a good attitude, but from a relational access to the Trinitarian community that we call God, what the writers of the Bible call the joy of the Lord. All that to say, though there is no doubt that in hate's language, some people just won the cortical lottery, right? You know who you are, and we're jealous. Um, But even those of us who are very different by our personality or our disposition or our genetic code, who are bent more toward anxiety or depression, we need to hear that we are not victims of our genetics, that we have far more agency than we realize to live a happy life. And as followers of Jesus, through the spirit, we have access to the joy of God himself and therefore more capacity for joy than most of us ever dare to actualize. Now, the question I wanna get into this morning is, how? Last week, we covered a biblical theology of joy. We made three very basic points. One, God is the most joyful, happy being in the universe. Two, the gospel is that the joy of the Trinitarian community we call God is available to all, right here and right now, through Jesus, no matter what your circumstances are. And three, Jesus' vision is to grow and mature his apprentices into the kinds of people who are deeply joyful as he is. And we left off with this idea that most people's deepest desire, like if we're honest and like we are asked the question, what do you most want out of life? Most of us, our deepest desire is to be happy. And the problem of the human condition, contrary to what you often hear in church, is not that we want to be happy, but it's that we look to the wrong source for that kind of happy or joyful life, to what Jesus called sin, which for Jesus is the root disease underneath all of the misery of our day and age. All of the other stuff, the systematic injustice, the economic inequality, disease, evil, all of that is symptomatic of a much deeper disease. We use Ignatius of Loyola's definition of sin as quote, unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So for Jesus, the starting place to becoming a person of joy is, in his language, to repent and to believe. Another way to translate that is to rethink everything you think you know about what will make you happy and to trust Jesus and his vision of life in the kingdom of God. Now, that said, if sin is how we move away from happiness and joy, last week— How do we move toward happiness and joy this week? Well, think of our spiritual formation paradigm the same way that we do anything in the way of Jesus and his teachings, through practice and in community and by the Holy Spirit. Specifically, through the practice, or if you prefer, the spiritual discipline of celebration which is a deliberate attempt to obey a command that runs all the way through the library of scripture to rejoice. Now, just a moment ago, we read one of the best examples in all of the New Testament, and one of the most well-known, and for good reason. Reread with me one more time, chapter four, verse four. In fact, read this out loud with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice! And there's the exclamation point for good measure. Now, the word rejoice is karete in Greek. Can you say that? kind of like karate, but a little bit cooler. It is the verb form of the noun joy. It literally means to joy. It can be translated to celebrate because 90 plus percent of the time, it's in the plural. So this is something that you do with your community, not just alone. It can be translated throw a party or have a feast or celebrate. It just means to take pleasure in, or delight in, or at its most basic, it just means to be happy. One translation, like the little baby back there somewhere. Well done. One translation just has, be happy in God. Again, I say, be happy. And note that Paul, to the church in Philippi, has two staccato commands to be happy. Note that it is a command. It is something that we do. It is a choice. It is an act of the will. It is a decision that we make to honor God himself. Now, most of us don't think of joy or happiness this way because we think of joy as an emotion rather than, as we said last week, the overall condition of the heart, thinking, feeling, desire that we cultivate as a part of our apprenticeship to the most joyful person to ever live. As a result, we think of our relationship to joy, or if you prefer, happiness, and I use those words interchangeably, as passive, not active. And there is some truth in that, right? Joy is more than an emotion, but it's not less. And whenever joy comes, it comes as a gift from God. But it is also a choice don't believe me? Henry Nouwen, smarter than everybody. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is important to become aware that at every moment of our life, we have an opportunity to choose joy. This is a man, Enneagram type four, right, who is well acquainted with suffering, who made it a life ambition to choose joy. Or take a look at this from Richard Foster. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. Meaning we have far more agency than most of us dare to admit, or even in in more blunt language, responsibility before God to index our emotions toward joy. Rick Howe, whose book on joy is a hidden gem, just Path of Life by Rick Howe, you're welcome, Merry Christmas. He writes this, emotions are the tip of the iceberg. This, there is so much more beneath the surface. And when we explore that territory... We discover that we are active participants and contributors to our emotional states. Even if it seems that we have little control over our feelings per se, we do have a say about our entourage of values, beliefs, and desires. We can affirm them or deny them, embrace them or reject them, cultivate them or put them in check. This is what makes it possible for us to school our emotions. Wisely or foolishly, in healthy or unhealthy ways, we all manage our emotions. This, in turn, plays an important role in the formation of our character, and listen to this, this makes our emotions morally significant. He goes on to say, the pursuit of joy is a moral obligation, moral obligation in that we, it is a command from God. We have a responsibility before our creator to live in joy. Now, this is where the spiritual discipline or the practice of celebration comes in. Like all commands from God, the command to rejoice or to be happy is best obeyed not by trying but by what? Trent, well done, Bridgetown Church. You sat through the vision series 5 years in a row. I'm so proud of you. Not by trying, but by training, put another way, not by willpower. Okay, great. Let's be happy this week. Sun goes down at 2:30 in the afternoon. Never mind. <laughs> not by willpower, but by habits in secular language or in Bridgetown language, by practices, or in more classic Christian language, by spiritual disciplines that opened up our mind and our body and our community itself to the Spirit's power far beyond our willpower. And the way that we habituate the joy of the Spirit into our spirit is through what has come to be called the spiritual discipline of celebration. At its most basic, I would define it this way. It is where we pay special attention to all that is good, beautiful, and true in our life before God and, above all, in God himself, where we receive our life as a gift from our generous and loving God, and where, as an act of gratitude, we intentionally enjoy the simple pleasures of our life that index our heart toward more gratitude, and as we deliberately cultivate a mental perspective and physical posture of delight in our quest to obey Jesus' command to rejoice. As a result, over time, we become the kinds of people who are joyful as Jesus is joyful. Last week, we made the point that you can't pursue joy directly, only indirectly. This is the problem in our country, which is built around the pursuit of happiness. You can't pursue happiness. You have to pursue something or someone that is higher and greater than happiness, that is transcendent. For us, it is God and life in the kingdom of God. We said that in a biblical theology of joy, joy is the byproduct of communion, character, and circumstances. Communion, as we're just around God, every person you're around carries, and I don't understand the quantum physics of this, but carries or with them emotional and relational atmosphere that they usher into every room they enter. Some people walk into a room, and there, Gerald walks into a room, what do you feel? (laughs) It's all gonna be okay, all right, right? I walk into a room, what do you feel? Not that. Um, So (laughs) some of us walk into the room and you feel anger or tension or sensitivity, and other people feel joy, other people put you at ease. We all carry an atmosphere with us everywhere we go, and no one has a greater orb of impact than the Trinitarian community of God. So as we just spend time in the atmosphere, so to speak, of God himself, the most joyful, happy being in the universe, and we just commune with God, utilizing spiritual disciplines, but as we just set our mind and body before God, we experience joy. Also, our character, as we become what philosophers call moral joy, as we become deeply good people over decades of apprenticeship to Jesus, we begin to experience the joy of living as God intended human beings to live. And then finally, circumstances, as we as when our life is as it's supposed to be before God, and when we take delight in our life and the simple pleasures of our life before God, we experience joy. Now, as we turn the flywheel of joy over time and we just invest more and more energy and time and money and habits and intention and all that we are into communion with God and our character and delight in the simple pleasures of our circumstances and life, this flywheel starts to pick up its own inertia and it gets easier and it gets easier and it gets faster and it gets faster and we become more and more joyful or the opposite. If you think about it, both unhappiness and happiness, or if you prefer melancholy and joy, are self-perpetuating states of mind. That's why most people as they age either become more and more joyful and happy and grateful and flexible and at ease in their own body or negative and grumpy and critical and morose. Just ran into an old friend the other day, um, lovely guy, enjoy him, and we'd not seen each other in many years, ran into each other on the street, impromptu conversation. he just bought his second uh, vacation home. I thought, wow, you're doing really well for yourself. And then he just proceeded for 20, and I say this not to criticize him, but for 20 minutes just to just rail on our city, how Portland is just going to the dogs and this city doesn't know how to do anything. And it's just like, and it just listed basically every bad thing you could imagine about our city. And everything he said was right. I agree with him. But I was sitting there thinking, what a prison it must be to live in your own mind. What a horrific gut-wrenching way to wake up in the morning and walk the streets of this city. Sure, everything you said was, for the most part, true, but you said nothing about what is good and beautiful and true in our city, and there's plenty. There's plenty in our city, and I thought, man, what a prison to live in that kind of a flywheel, that self-perpetuating state of mind, where that is just how you see the world. And so this is a spiritual discipline that we must master, Because, as my friend Pete Gregg recently said to me, suffering is inevitable, but joy is not. Pete was here recently, and he's somebody I'm really looking forward to. He's about a decade older than me, 15 years older than me, and he's one of those 50-somethings who's just full of life and energy and vision and not how most of us age, and we just get tired, you know? And I'm, so I'm watching him as a friend. I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm watching him, with, and I pay close attention to his life, to his lifestyle, because I want to be in my early 50s and just full of vision and life and energy and joy. But he's right. Suffering is inevitable. Joy is not. I, I keep thinking the last few days of Paul's line, we are suffering but always rejoicing. I'm sorry, as sorrowful but always rejoicing. I love that he put the modifier always in front of the word rejoicing and not sorrowful. I love that he's not rejoicing, but always sorrowful. (laughs) Like, I love, no, it's sorrow comes and goes, but we are always rejoicing before God. I read a line a few days ago from Bono. He said, joy is an act of defiance. Take it from a former Irish punk rock band, right? Joy is an, I love that, joy is an act of defiance against the havoc that sin has wreaked on the world and the suffering and the injustice and the violence and the death and the newsfeed. It's a counterinsurgency against the serpent himself, the most depressing being to ever live. And the beauty of the spiritual discipline of celebration is that while it is an act of defiance, and for many of us, just based on our genetic code, it is, it is an uphill battle but it is not rocket science. It is very simple and straightforward. I chose Philippians 4 as our text because Paul follows his command to rejoice with what I interpret to be a short tutorial on how to do that, how to joy to be happy in God. Notice what he says in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, and he goes on. You could break Paul's tutorial down into two basic steps. The first is to set your mind on. Joy, As we all know, we can't will joy. Joy is more than an emotion, but it's not less, and you can't will an emotion. There's no happy switch or mad switch or calm switch that we just flip on or off. We don't have that level of control over our emotions. Because of that, many of us just give up altogether and live at the mercy of our emotions or even in slavery to our emotions and with them our desires but we do have much more control over our mind, what we think about, what we give our attention to. And as a general rule, our feelings follow our thinking. I mean, feelings and thoughts are virtually indistinguishable at a neurobiological level, but most of us experience our feelings as coming behind our thoughts. If right now you stop and think about somebody that you hate Doesn't usually take very long to think of somebody. Just have somebody come to mind. If you just right now start to to stew on all that they've done to you, all the wrong they've done to you, all the hurt they've done to you, what do you feel? Anger, hurt, sadness. You're welcome, I'm just here to bless you this morning. Or if you stop and you think about North Korea, as my son and I did the other day, who's asking questions about the latest nuclear missile test and then he said, Dad, aren't we on the West Coast? Where would they bomb? And I said, probably Seattle, and then maybe yes. We're not a big enough city, but maybe, you never know. What do you feel if you start to think about that? Fear, again, you're welcome, just here to help you joy in God. (laughs) In the same way, when we stop or at least slow down enough to think about God, and how happy God is, and how we are in Christ, we are in all of that joy, and as we think about how good our life before God is, what do we feel? We feel joy, and peace, and love. So we can't will joy per se, but we can will a thought life that is curated in such a way that joy is the inevitable result. And notice in Paul's letter right here, there are three steps, if you would, that's pushing it a little bit from an exegetical level, but I think there are three little ideas in here. The first is to surrender the illusion of control. Do not be anxious, verse six, about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, pray about it, ask God for it, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Meaning, you just ask God, you set it all before God, and then you walk away, then you let go. Meaning, we have to let go of outcomes. We have to face up to the reality that we're not in control of our life, of the event or people or circumstances of our life, and that's okay. That no matter what happens to us or does not happen to us, we're living in the kingdom with Jesus, and nothing and no one can take that away from us not height, not depth, not any other creative thing can separate us from our life in the love community that is God. Until we come to the place of what the ancients called indifference or freedom or detachment, where we want our life, to where we're free, not of the desire or for our life to go a certain way, but for the need for our life to go a certain way for us to be happy. As long as we are emotionally still attached to outcomes, we will never live free. We'll never live joyfully. We have to live where we're living in the presence and in the joy of God all day long. We have desires, we have emotions, we know how to grieve, but at a healthy level, we're no longer emotionally attached to outcomes. Secondly, give thanks. He goes on to say, with thanksgiving, Just work gratitude into the fabric of your being. Practice it constantly, all day long. You know people like that, who are just joyful. They tend to be the most grateful people you know. Those two things go together in a beautiful way. And three, focus your attention on all that is good. I love verse eight, he goes on to say, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, if you have the NIV, read this with me, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about it. That can be translated, meditate on or fill your mind with, give your attention to these types of things. As we said recently, what we give our attention to is the person we become. Milton so famously said, the mind is its own place. In itself, it can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. What we give our thought life to, what we think about, what we watch on TV, what we conversate about, what we let ruminate in our mind in the quiet moments, has the potential to make our life a living hell, to entrap us in the prison of our own mind over decades, or to lead us into freedom in the kingdom of heaven on earth. If you're anything like me, and there's all sorts of evolutionary psychology behind this, but my mind, is it naturally just goes to the bad, not to the good, right? And this is, of course, further exacerbated by the media and the way it makes money off of our human bent and proclivity toward the negative. So we have to go against the grain at some level of our own brain wiring. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Philippians chapter 4, says this, the command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mine instilled by the modern media. It's good to think about. What are the habits of mine instilled to me by my iPhone? Read the newspapers. This is a little old quote. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the creator if you feed your mind only on the place in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and to celebrate? You could argue that joy is a cultivated way of seeing the world in your mind's eye, just like cynicism or anger or fear. These are self-perpetuating states of mind that we cultivate over time. As followers of Jesus, we must discipline our mind to focus on the goodness of our life with Jesus in the kingdom as an act of discipleship. To recap, surrender the illusion of control, give thanks, focus your attention on the good, and in doing so, set your mind on joy. Secondly, move your body into joy. We have a mind and a body, or in more biblical language, we are a mind and a body. We are a whole person. What theologians call embodied spirituality, very non-Platonic in spite of how much of that language goes on in the church for the last millennium. We have a responsibility to index both our mind, our body, our whole person toward the joy of the Lord. Notice what Paul says at the end, verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, seen in my body itself, put it into practice, do it with your body. And then as a result, here it is again, as a byproduct, my peace, and the word here is irene, it means more than peace, it means a deep, pervasive sense of well-being, the idea here is shalom, will be with you. Meaning, live the way that I live is what he's saying. Adopt my lifestyle and you will experience shalom. We do this by taking care of our body, by treating it as it is, the temple of God. I don't mean that in the 24-hour fitness bro way. I mean that in the Corinthians chapter 3 biblical theology way. Um, Treating it like a temple with sleep and diet and exercise and margin One of the first steps toward living a joyful life for many of you in the room this morning is just to sleep. One of the first things you should go do is just go take a nap this afternoon as an act of trusting God and go to bed tonight at 7.30 p.m. Seriously, this is one of the first things. I mean, I have to because of how my emotional thing, I have to sleep bare minimum eight hours a night. But then moving our body into the practices of Jesus, such as Sabbath and feasting and community and worship. Here we are, practices where joy is the inevitable result. What happens when you go to the beach for a summer trip or you cook a nice meal and eat it with your friends or you just sing to Jesus in church? What do you feel? You feel some modicum of joy. Joy is a cultivated way of living before God in our body. And it's that simple. Set your mind on joy, move your body into joy. Richard Foster does a great job of tying together the mind and the body with this quote. God has established a created order full of excellent and good things, and it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. This is God's appointed way to joy. If we think, and I love his honesty here, that we will have joy only by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is full of joy. (laughs) Now, there are all sorts of ways to practice the spiritual discipline of celebration. Here's just a very short list, my top 10, music, 10 of the best dollars I spend every month is on Apple Music, all right, anybody? Come on, you have to admit. Um, but there is nothing just like a good melody to invite joy. This is one of the reasons that we sing at church. I mean, why are, there are no other major world religions where singing at any level in the way that we sing and much less singing with joy is remotely even on the radar. This comes from the Trinitarian community of joy. Singing, dancing, laughter, as the saying goes, is the best medicine. I read a study this week that said children laugh on average 400 times a day, adults 15. (laughs) Me, one. Some of us need to, there you go, we just got our laugh in for the day, done. Some of us need to recapture that childlike penchant for a good laugh. Storytelling, what, it's interesting, what happens when you show up for a wedding or a birthday party, Nathan, you were just married, um, a special occasion, and somebody gives a speech, what do they do nine times out of 10? Do they like quote philosophers? No, do they quote the Bible even? Not really, they tell stories. I remember when Nathan was three and he ran out naked in front of whatever. And, and you tell stories, you tell funny stories, embarrassing stories, joyful stories. There's something in us is that just like, we feel the need to tell stories as a way to index our heart toward joy. Why is it that most of the Bible is story? Why is it that the Psalms, the singing lyric of the Bible, is often half of them just retell the stories of God's grace in the history of Israel? Number five, holidays, or as that name comes from, holy days, Christmas, Independence Day, May the 4th, in the Catholic... (laughs) In the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, there are dozens of feast days every year. We don't follow the liturgical calendar. And one of the things we've lost out is where the church has, through history, literally put joy on the calendar and said it's Thursday, December, whatever. Be happy because of, some, of dead, some dead saint you've never heard of in your life, but be happy today. Traditions in our family every year, the day after Thanksgiving, we go with our family and friends to a cut. we cut down a Christmas tree, we make homemade hot cocoa, drink it out of the back of the car, put it on the top, and then we go to Burgerville. That's just what we do. You do whatever you want, but that's a way that we just habituate joy. Sabbath, which is like a weekly holiday or tradition where you just pleasure stack, we've done work on this before, where you just fill it with all of the best things in your life. Tim Keller once said that because the week is full of so many ugly things on the Sabbath, we must feed our heart with beauty what many of you are doing right here this morning on this Sabbath day. Gratitude, as I said before, just working that into all that we are. This morning, I did, I do it every single morning. I take this little piece of paper out and at the beginning of my day, I just write down three things that I'm grateful for and then wait to hear anything that the Spirit would have for me that day because I, just, I have to. It's so counter to how my brain is wired. I have to rewire it. this. Spending time with joyful people. Just find a type seven on the Enneagram who's healthy and ask to be their friend, you know? <laughs> um, you joyful people, Gerald, my wife, many others, you're just such a gift to our community and we thank God for you, we love you, we appreciate you, we need you in our life, and we ask that you would set the tone for our community as a whole. Feasting, I know of no better way to cultivate joy than to eat a good meal with community and before God. I think of Proverbs 15, the cheerful of heart as a continual feast. Is it any wonder that Jesus left us a meal to remember him by? And what's the meal? Carrots and water. None of that, (laughs) bread and wine. This is my kind of the embodiment of God right here, bread and wine. The early church called it the agape feast, which over the years, and we've done work on this before, last summer devolved into the somber, kind of uber serious and introspective mass, but it started out as a party to celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, these are just a few ideas. You have to make your own list. But I say that just for you to notice two things. One, notice the blend of the religious and the regular. A wise man once said, religion must never become your life. Your life must become your religion. Meaning all of your life must become a way of living before God. I specifically did not put spiritual disciplines other than Sabbath on there, at least the the kind of more church ones, because the whole point is to lean into God and his joy in all that we do. The classical list of the spiritual disciplines and making pancakes with our kids on a Saturday morning. And two, all of these require that we slow down. The 20th century spiritual director, Evelyn Underhill, observed that the spirit of joy and the spirit of hurry cannot live in the same house. She writes about what she calls the sacrament of the present moment, meaning the capacity to just to turn the present moment, whatever it is that you're doing, sweeping out your front porch, or commuting to work in the morning, or answering some text messages, or a feast with your community, or Christmas, or whatever, just to turn whatever you are doing in that moment into a sacrament, into a means of grace, into a medium through which you connect with and commune with the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace, and you receive whatever that moment is as a gift from God's hand. To live present to the moment is perhaps the greatest challenge to the spiritual life, but it's also the best-kept secret to living joyfully with God. I was reading Brendan Manon yesterday, And he called presence to the moment the, quote, premier skill of the spiritual life. And he said, it's not a path to God, it is the path to God. To end, let me just reiterate to you what I said last week. God's desire for you, for me, for all of us who follow Jesus and for all is that we would be deeply happy. Even if for many of us, that will take more than a book or a sermon or a little positive thinking, it will take a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus. All I want you to hear this morning is this will not just happen to us. It will not, as Foster said, just fall on our heads. We have a a responsibility before God, a moral obligation, end quote, to obey the command to rejoice via the practice or the spiritual discipline of celebration. As Ronald Rollheiser said, We owe it to our creator to be as happy as we can. This is how we show our love and our gratitude back to our God. Let me end just by reading to you from Trevor Hudson, who's a professor of mine, who I sat with for a while because he's a self-described introspective introvert. And he's many years older than me and said he's been on a lifelong journey toward becoming a person of joy. He writes this, joy is a primary foundation of life in the kingdom of God. This joy flows from the vision of God as the most joyous being in the universe. Not only does God want to give us this joy, we need to constantly seek it as well. Joy does not automatically happen to us, but knowing that the risen Christ has decisively overcome the powers of darkness and death and that nothing can ultimately separate us from the reality of God's loving presence, we can learn how to choose joy and so become one of those joyous Christ followers who heal, transform, and bless our suffering world. In the same way that the Gerald's and my wife and many of you joyful people are such a blessing to our community and you have no idea what a gift you are. Can you imagine what a blessing our community could be to the city if hundreds of us were to go out to this city in the middle of winter, one of the most depressed cities in our country, and just spread joy? Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.